Well, Lord willing, uh, we will continue on today with the subject of biblical corporate worship. And um, throughout the, the series here, I've tried to give a little bit of a brief overview. Uh, I'm going to skip that today because uh, there, there was just too much information here on, on this particular particular element of worship. So as we begin here, may the Lord give us the ears to hear and an understanding of his word as we uh, come into his word here and an understanding that only the Holy Spirit can bring. We know that ultimately true worship can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit and in God's truth. We've looked at that again and again over the last uh, month and a half. And the Lord has graciously provided us uh, with his truth, which is the word of God that we may know how to worship him, that we may know him, and uh, that we may grow in him. He has given us commands and examples that we may know his desires and how he wants to be worshipped. He gives us everything that we need that we can properly worship him and live out our life as one of his chosen people. We are given the elements of worship through the examples and commands that, that he has given to us in Scripture, and thus far we have looked at the elements of the assembly, baptism, the Lord's Supper, foot washing, prayer, laying on of hands, and singing. And our last element uh, today will be the preaching of the word. Now there are three participants in this element. One is the believing preacher of the word, and the other is the elect hearer of the word. And yes, I said three participants. Uh, there was an implied third person there. And as I wrote that down, I thought about uh, R.C. Sproul. He made a joke one time, and my wife has a t-shirt and it says, there are three kinds of people, those who know math, those who don't. That one didn't land well, but that was... <laughs> Sproul delivered it better, I guess. But, uh... <laughs> but uh, the participants in this worship element are the believing preacher and the elect hearer. And by default, both of these participants, if born again, have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Jesus also said that when two or three, when two or more are gathered, that he is there among them. And so there are three participants, uh, the preacher of the word, the hearer of the word, and the Holy Spirit active, actively working in both of those people. Our confession states in chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another, uh, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our heart, hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and Lord's Supper, are all parts of, of religious worship to God, to be performed in obedience. And so we go back to that first part of that. The reading of the scriptures, preaching, and hearing the word is to be performed in obedience to God with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgiving upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. So we are to read, preach, teach, hear, edify, and admonish one another in the word of God. It is central to worship. Last week when we talked about singing, I quoted Benjamin Keach. I thought it was a really good quote. He said, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs comprehend all kinds of spiritual songs whereby the faithful sing the glory of God and the edification of the church, the education, the uplifting, the, the, the admonishing, the instruction of the church, provided they are taken out of the word of Christ. 
So our, our music, our prayers, all come forth out of what we know of the scriptures or of the scriptures themselves. And so also, in addition to that, part of the worship comes the reading and the preaching of the word. So worshiping in the spirit and truth, the truth is the word of God. You cannot worship without it. Preaching brings the word to the forefront of worship and gives the pure truth of God to the hearers. The confession rightly states that worship of God is to be performed in obedience to him. We follow God's instructions. He has given them to us for a reason. Brother Charles covered this this morning. He said a whole lot of stuff that I wanted to add into this that I just didn't have time for. <laughs> so again, providence just worked these things, knit them beautifully together. But, uh, you know, we've, we, we God just doesn't say something for naught. There is something there. He gives us the instructions. He gives us every single word in here for a purpose. And it's for our, our edification and for his glory. And his purposes will be accomplished. <clears throat> the confession goes on to say, We are to worship with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So the knowledge and the understanding both come from God. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, gentleness, goodness, and faith. Again, the gift of faith. It is something that is a working of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Hebrews 12, uh, verses 28-29, Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us hold fast to the gospel of grace, that wonderful, beautiful, free and sovereign grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. It converts us. It regenerates us. It changes everything about us, that grace. It sanctifies us. It makes us acceptable before a holy and righteous God. Knowing that we don't deserve that grace, but rather judgment and punishment for our sins, should create in us an attitude of that reverence or a deep respect with the understanding that we are truly unworthy of any of God's grace, love, and mercy. But uh, through Christ, we do receive that, and that should humble us as we come before God. We stand in awe before him. That passage in Hebrews, uh, to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, we can also say with reverence and with with awe, uh, in awe of standing before God. And we have this godly fear because there is an ad admiration for the majesty of the one true living God. We see it revealed in his word, which makes it even more powerful to us, that majesty, which should create even a, a greater sense of awe as we continue to flip through his, his word here, just reading it verse by verse. And Brother Charles said it right after we, uh, he finished with the Bible study about you know, how, how much more we learn about God and how much we don't know about God, the more and more that we study. And, and the, just the majesty and the awesomeness of God uh, that, that he continues to reveal to us in the scriptures. And if you're not getting that, that increasing uh, understanding of majesty and awe, then, then you must go deeper into the Word of God, putting more time into it, more time studying, reading, meditating upon it. If you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> 
Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And uh, Nehemiah was, of course, uh, written after the uh, the end of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the, the time period of captivity here that uh, Judah was sent into, and, and others uh, of the children of Israel, and they have come back from from this captivity. Uh, the Lord has drawn them back, and He didn't draw them back just so that they can have their own land. He drew them back for a purpose, and that purpose was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so all these things here again point towards Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points towards Christ. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded, uh, commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Those two verses, by the way, are, are one of many verses or passages that we use uh, as the example and uh, as a command, really, for what we would, what some would refer, refer to as family integrated worship or an all encompassing worship where there's no division. We don't start dividing people up. Sadly, there's a lot of. Uh, Churches uh, that the moment you walk into the door, they split everybody apart. Uh, They've got children's church, teen church, this church, that church. Everybody's separated off in different worship services. But in the scriptures, we see time and time and time and time and time and time again, everybody's brought together. We don't see separation. We see everybody brought together. Even the people that aren't even truly born again or of the elect. They're still just all herded together so that they can hear the message of what is about to be preached. And we see it, and we see great transformation on the part of God by everybody being brought together. Verse 3, And here, and he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive. They were paying attention here. They were actively listening, intently Listening. This wasn't they just sat there like you might turn on the TV and just kind of zone out. This is something where they were actively listening. They wanted to hear. And as I was thinking about that verse, I thought I thought back to September 11th. And I can remember watching things all day long of, of these, these horrible attacks. And then what was, what was America waiting for? We were waiting for the president to come out and say, this is what happened. This is our response. And so Americans sat on the edge of their seats waiting and listening to the President of the United States. They want to know what was going on, what is happening. And they, they, they just they intently listened. And I can remember my uncle died a couple days after. And we were at uh, my aunt's house, and uh, the President was going to make an address that was basically, we're going to war. I think that was maybe the 16th or 17th uh, then, about a, six days or so later after the attacks, and I can remember, he went before Congress, and he stood there, and he says, what we're going to do, we're going to war, and I can remember, we were all gathered there, all our family and and, and friends and such for, uh, you know, to be there for my aunt, for my uncle's death, and and all that was going on, everybody stopped, 
And we all gathered around the TV and we all sat there intently listening and waiting and watching to hear what was about to take place. Because it deeply affected our lives and the lives of everybody around us. And here these people, after coming back from being in bondage, having their, their country destroyed, having everything about their culture, their society, their identity, even their families split up and destroyed, these people were all gathered together here at the reading of the Word, and they were sitting there intently wanting to know what is God doing. What is, what is the man in charge about to tell us about what his plans are, what is going on, and how he's going to do things? And it's the same kind of thing we saw back then in our own lives. Here they are, intently listening, wanting to know what's about to be said. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. We kind of still have that carried on today, don't we? Down to verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. We still kind of do that today, don't we, with the platform? And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They saw that it was so holy, out of reverence they stood in honor of it, out of respect for the reading of the word. And once that word was read, having that godly fear, that sense of awe, what did they do? went with their faces to the ground. Moving to the last part of verse 7, Ezra and the others with him says, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So there's the job of a preacher right there. That's the job of the pastor in the worship service. Right there. The main function is to cause the people to understand the word of God. The preacher must read it distinctly, giving the sense of what God is saying and help believers understand what is being read. If you look at Ezra verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10, it's actually concerning all of this happening here, everything here going on. And it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So a pastor must be a devoted teacher, and we see that in 1 Timothy 3.2 and 2 Timothy 2.24. The the, the pastor, the preacher, must be a teacher. That's his main job. It's not to uh, tickle ears. It's not to give a bunch of anecdotes and stories and make people feel good or feel comfortable. It's not to be emotional. It's to just give the Word of God. If the Holy Spirit moves a preacher to be emotional because of what's in there, that's great. But when the preachers come out and they have to conjure up their own emotion because they want to do things that, that, that prick the heart of the people based off of what the preacher's saying, then you know that's wrong. <laughs> uh, that, that's not right. Emotionalism, anecdotal emotionalism is even worse. It is not according to what we see in scriptures. The, the emotionalism that we do see in scripture that is Holy Spirit generated is when we see some horrific sin and a prophet who is coming out and pleading with the people for repentance on the behalf of God. But when we look at a lot of the New Testament preaching, we don't really see much of that. There is a pleading. There is a, a, uh, a, a, an emotional plea to people, but we're not seeing a lot of that emotionalism that, that seems to be apparent in this country today 
uh, in, in an attempt to make something happen in the believer. If you've got to try to make something happen in the believer, you've already failed as a preacher <laughs> because you take it on to yourself. It's got to be the Holy Spirit that does that. If the Holy Spirit brings somebody to tears, let it be. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it must be from the Spirit of God. If you would uh, go down to Nehemiah chapter 9, and uh, Nehemiah 9, 1, here the children of Israel are coming before God in, in worship. They recognize their sinfulness and how, and how unworthy they, worthy they are, unworthy they are, because of what they just heard preached. They just heard the Word of God, they heard it expounded upon, and it devastated them. Not Nehemiah 9, 1. Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord God. So the people were overwhelmed with, with reverence and awe, a, a godly fear. We've already seen this kind of unfolding. So over, they were so overcome with the horror of their sin, both of theirs and their fathers. And their fathers' fathers were going back here more than, seven, more than 70 years because it was sinfulness that drove uh, this to occur. And God was uh, long-suffering with the people of Israel. He, he uh, well, in this case, the people of Judah, he... He waited a very long time to bring upon this punishment. He kept calling them to repentance and calling them and calling them. He even gave them a great king, Josiah, uh, that did some great works, and yet those people continued to rebel. And so here, they, these people recognize their own sin and the sin of their fathers, and it is devastating to them. They are so overcome that they fasted, they put on sackcloths, and they rubbed dirt on themselves. They were so overcome with what was read to them, knowing that these are the words of God, and he was outlined sin. When you read the book of the law, there's a whole lot of stuff there that you can identify sin very clearly. God says, don't do this, and especially when we get to the Ten Commandments. And they knew, they knew, in contrast, that if this is sin, then what is God? Holy. God is holy. holy. He's righteous. And we are not. And this devastated them. Just as we do here on the Lord's Day, they separated themselves from the rest of the world. You know, we don't go to a movie theater and just kind of hang around and maybe, you know, do whatever we want. You know, there's a purpose. We come here, we we get separated from the rest of the world. We come off as God's people. We gather together to worship Him. They confessed their sins and they went straight back into the Word of God. So they hear the Word of God. God brings them under conviction. They're repenting. They're sorrowful for, for their sin. They, they repent, and then they go right back into the Word again. They want more of it. They read the entire book of the law, the first five books of the Bible. You know, a lot of people think that, that prayer is the key to revival, and I think that's an important part of, you know, be praying for revival. But when we look at the Old Testament, and we look at what we see in the book of Acts, what's the key element for some kind of revival or great awakening? A lot of reading of God's Word. Tons of it. Every time in the Old Testament we see the people gathered together and read 
and they and they and the, the word of God was read to them and preached to them, there was a, a, a major change. Something happened. So every time we see some mighty work of God, it is accompanied by the reading and preaching of God's word. It is God speaking to his people. And so how else are we going to know anything of God unless we go straight to this? That's the most important thing. The men, recorded in Nehemiah, read and preached the word of God, and the Holy Spirit moved mightily among the people. When they heard the word, they felt guilty because of their individual sins and of their sins of the nation. And if you go down to verse 9 here in Nehemiah 9, it says, And Nehemiah, which is the, the Tersethach, and Ezra the priest, the Ezra the priest, the scribes, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. Talk about a mighty movement of God here among all of these people. And if you go back to the beginning of Nehemiah and also at the beginning of Ezra, it talks about all of the uh, the numbers of the people that were here. There were there was a huge multitude. And all the people wept when they heard the word of the Lord. This wasn't something that was done because of how the preaching was done. Yes, they made sense of it. They gave the sense of the word. They helped the people to understand what was there so that God could do what he was going to do in affecting the, these people, in affecting their hearts and their minds, bringing about what we see here in this great emotion of this weeping. And these people had not heard this before. They'd been in ex, you know, the, the, the exile had, had just become had just uh, come to an end. They had not heard anything like this for at least seventy years. And really, uh, before that, the nation was in a rebellious disaster. And so there was no mass reading of the scriptures clear back to the time of Josiah, King Josiah, and that was at about uh, six twenty four B.C. Ezra read the book. Uh, uh, of the law to the people in about uh, 454 B.C. So that's 170 years. 170 years that this had not been done. They had not heard the word of God read and preached like this as a nation for 170 years. Several generations would have died off in that period of time. That's a frightening thing to think about. That that was withheld from those people for that long. Ezra did not just read the word, word for word. He preached it, taught it to make sense, and helped those people to understand. He presented the holy word to God's people, and God moved them to give them that understanding and that conviction. It is not generated from the preaching itself. It's generated by the Holy Spirit applying that word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2.10. Paul writing to the church in or to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 2.10 But God hath revealed them and revealed is a key word there revealed them unto us by his spirit for the spirit searches all things yea, the deep things of God 
For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. (laughs) Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So this is important here, that the things that are revealed to us, and specifically what is revealed to us in the Word of God, these things, it's the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that teaches these things. And so I could stand here and I could speak all day long, but without the Holy Spirit, nothing will come to avail with us. You walk away with nothing. You might have some little you know, trinkets of knowledge, but without the working of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing. We rely upon our own understanding and then we only under- understand things according to the wisdom of man. But when we have the mind of Christ and the active working of the Holy Spirit, then we understand things in a spiritual sense, the way that God intends us to understand these things. The Word is read and preached, and the Holy Spirit uses that to bring a change within us, a change of heart and mind, and He gives us understanding. He gives us the ears to hear, the, the eyes to see. He does an amazing work in us using the Word of God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, if you would. Please. Acts chapter 2, 237. In the New Testament, we see the same thing happen to the people who heard the word of God like those whom Ezra preached to. See a similar reaction. In Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to preach to the people in Jerusalem and he expounds the word of God to them. He keeps referencing uh, scriptures. He, he references what uh, things had taken place in the Old Testament and he's, he's preaching to the, to the people here. And in Acts 2.37, he says, Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So they were pricked in the heart from what they heard. It's the Holy Spirit working in them. They heard, they heard an ex- exposition. They expounded upon the word of God to let them know what is actually happening here. To give a reason for what is happening among these apostles and disciples. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Those whom God called heard the word preached and were moved by it. These people were converted by God. They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit and they were converted through the hearing of the word. They were lost sheep brought into the fold. Those who believed the gospel that was presented to them, that good news of what Christ had done to save sinners, those who believed on it, believed by the power of the Holy Spirit, they went and they were baptized, 
And then they continued on in the apostles' doctrine, which was what? The word of God. This is the apostles' doctrine in here. It is the word of God. They continued on in it. This was one of the key things here that they want to make note of, is that here a, a, a person is converted, and that person gets baptized, and they dive into the word of God, and they are worshiping here, really. They are, they are worshiping because they're going into the apostles' doctrine. They're having fellowship. We have the assembly there, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. They gather together to accomplish these things, which they knew how to do, knew that they needed to do them by the word of God. So they continue on their new lives as God's redeemed people by firmly holding to the word of God. And it says that they continued steadfastly. Steadfastly means a firm holding with a steadiness of mind. That's a difficult thing sometimes. To take a firm hold of something and to be focusing on it and have a steadiness of mind to stay in it. There's lots of times I'll be reading and my mind just drifts. I sat down to read this morning. And I, I read several verses, and I realized I had no idea what I just read. And I go back. <laughs> that happens often. I mean, it just your, your mind kind of drifts. But to be paying attention, actively in that word, and learning from it, listening to it, having it just to be absorbed into you, that's that steadfastness. And here these believers, so hungry and desperate for God that they're clinging to it. How often do we just kind of read through it and... and, and, and not have that steadfastness of mind. Sometimes we need to go back, we need to think about what is what is this really? You know, the word of God, the greatness of God that comes through in this, that we can know him. When we really consider what all he has done for us and that amazing grace that he had gifted to us, what that what that gift of grace cost on the cross, and who God is, uh, that should to me, for me, I often feel shame because I, I mistreat the Word of God and not giving it that steadfastness, that, that intensity that it truly deserves. If you would, uh, turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. We're flipping around a lot here this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews here gives us an exhortation here concerning our hearing of the word. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard it, God also bearing them witness with both signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Give an earnest heed to it. We should not let them slip. And we should not neglect so great a salvation. And, and how do we know salvation? We know salvation because of this. This is how we know. This is where the good news of what Christ has done, that gospel, is contained. It is how we know salvation. And we'll get to that shortly. Matthew Henry writes on this passage, This is the first way by which we are to show our esteem of Christ and of the gospel. We saw that in Acts, didn't we? 
What was the first thing that they did after being baptized? Went into the Word. It is the great concern of everyone under the gospel to give the most earnest heed to all gospel discoveries and directions, to prize them highly in his judgment as matters of the greatest importance, to hearken to them diligently in all the opportunities, opportunities he has for that purpose, and to read them frequently, to meditate upon them closely, and to mix faith with them. We must embrace them in our hearts and affections, retain them in our memories, and finally regulate our words and actions according to them. He goes on to say how sinning against the gospel is described. It is declared to be a neglect of this great salvation. It is a contempt put upon the saving grace of God in Christ, making light of it, not caring for it, not thinking it worth their while to acquaint themselves with it, not regarding either the worth of gospel grace or their own one of it, an undone state without it, not using their endeavors to discern the truth of it and assent to it, nor to discern the goodness of it, so as to approve of it or apply it to themselves. In these things they discover a plain neglect of this great salvation. Let us all take heed that we be not found among those wicked, wretched sinners who neglect the grace of this gospel. The great words here from Matthew Henry. The word of God should not and cannot be disregarded by God's people. It is our life. It is expressed heart and mind and will of our God. It is vitally important to our personal lives. In the life of our congregation, it is vitally important to it. That is why God does call us together to worship and to read and preach the word. His holy word, the holy scriptures, deserve our greatest attention and devotion, for without it we cannot know God. We cannot please him in carrying out his will. When we come to hear the word and the word read and preached, there should be a desire to feast upon the man of God that he has laid out before us. And we see how great the word is, is described, the, the, that heavenly feast uh, that he gives us is sweeter than honey, desired uh, to be desired more than gold. What a great thing that it just should satisfy us and be so sweet to our whole condition, our, our whole being. Uh, the Word of God is that amazing that it should just satisfy us in a way that nothing else on this world can ever do. Now this puts a lot of pressure on the preacher. He must be diligent in studying the Word of God and making sure that he teaches what is true, the true meaning of God's Word. Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If preaching and teaching is not from the word itself, there is no light or truth in it. There's lots of times that we've been to uh, churches visiting, and uh, there'll be massive churches, and not once do you even have to open your Bible. You won't even hear, the, you won't even hear it quoted. Uh, if it is, it's in some paraphrased form that's not even identifiable as, the, as what's in here. And that's sad, because then it's not preaching. Because there's no scripture in it. There, there's no preaching there. It's just up there. It's just vain, vain jangles. <laughs> there's nothing there. Paul writes to Timothy in a pastoral letter in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
You can't be furnished to good works or do good works unless you know what they are. And this is how you are able to accomplish those things. The scriptures are given to us by God himself. It is God breathed. He was specific on what he wanted us to know. He gave that to us for a purpose, and that is for our doctrine, for our reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and for godly living. It is the scriptures that God uses to mold believers into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He gives us all we need to do the good works that he has prepared for us since before the foundation of the world. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. A pastor should always have the desire to share God's word, just as Jeremiah said, his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing it, and I could not stay. He could not bear that word being bottled up within him. He had to preach it. He had to let it out. And he did, (laughs) in quite a mighty way. And as he preached the word of God, just the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing those words uh, to life, uh, giving light to to what was there. Uh, It's amazing when you read through what Jeremiah wrote. And you could really, you can can sense that whole uh, sentiment right there in some of the, the, the things that he wrote, especially when you get into Lamentations. You, can, you could feel that, that there was just this burning desire to get out what God had said. If you would turn uh, to 1 Corinthians 9.13. 1 Corinthians 9.13. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes... <clears throat> I'll give you a second here. I have them in front of me, so sometimes I jump ahead a little quicker than what you all can flip through pages. 1 Corinthians 9.13 Paul writes Do ye not know that which they that which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar (laughs) even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel so the entire life of the pastor should be wrapped up in the ministry of God everything their life should be saturated with it John Gill adds of the preacher here uh, that they should labor and not loiter in the word and doctrine who do the work of the ministry fully and faithfully and not bear the name only of gospel preachers. So if you, if, if you read the, the, the news in, uh, uh, in Christendom <laughs> of things that are going on among churches and Christianity in America, uh, especially some of the, the, the sites that are take a more reformed approach or hold to the doctrines of grace, you may have noticed that there's a lot of hoopla over the president of the Southern Baptist Convention committing plagiarism. This guy has a whole team of people who are supposed to prepare a sermon for him. He doesn't even prepare his own sermons. He has a team. The sad thing is, is that he and his team have knowingly been copying sermons from other pastors for years. Years. He hasn't had an original sermon and I don't even know how long. They ripped off an entire series of sermons. Uh, that's sad. And, uh, you know, John Gill here. I, 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 sometimes I, I read these men like John Gill and I would love to see how they would react to men like the president of the Southern Baptist Convention who thinks it's okay to plagiarize. Uh, the sermons were bad to begin with from the guy that originally preached them. Some of it was blasphemy. 
And this guy, I mean, even among Southern Baptist, Baptist standards, the stuff was heresy. And he still preached it. And he ripped it off of somebody else. And here John Gill says, uh, you know, um, those who do not work of the ministry fully and faithfully not, uh, and not bear the name only of gospel preachers. So he's only bearing the name of a pastor superficially. He's not truly a, a minister of God. And those men who don't labor and put all this time into the word and doctrine, who do that work of ministry fully and faithfully, it, it, they, they become just these shells. They're nothing. And sometimes you'll get some nuggets of truth out of them. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. <laughs> and sometimes you'll get that. But you don't get good, pure doctrine. You don't get satisfactory truth out of exposition of Scripture. They don't make sense of the Word because they're too concerned with making sense of what they want in a message of the things that they want to convey, not what the Word of God wants to convey. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there, verse 15. Paul says, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be done so unto me, for it were better for me to die than any man should make my glory void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid down upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. It's about the same thing we heard from Jeremiah. We're just... It was just pent up in him. He just he had to get that out. He had to preach the gospel. And Paul says, woe unto me if I, if, if I don't preach that gospel. Not only woe unto him just because of not being able to contain it, but woe unto him because of the judgment that should come upon a man who has the word of God and doesn't share that word. What are we supposed to do as a body of believers? Edify one another. Educate one another. Admonish one another. Help give each other direction. Help give each other doctrine that we learn from that doctrinal truth. Give each other correction if needed. And God forbid we have to rebuke each other, but it may have to happen on occasion. And that's okay. And there's different levels of rebuking. It can be done in a gentle way, and sometimes it has to be done in a very harsh way, depending on the seriousness of the sin, or how serious the error of understanding God's word. But we have to work together as God's people to do these things which means that we all must be diligent students of the Word of God, not just the pastor. He says, Woe unto me. It must have been a horrible thought for Paul. When you, when you read the great things that he wrote, it had to have been a, a horrible thing for him not to be able to get those things out. And it, I, it, was, it was months ago, Brother Charles, you had said something, I know I'm not going to quote you right, so I'm going to paraphrase, but you had said there are times where you can, you would love to be able to say things. There's certain things you hear when there's teaching or preaching being done, and you just feel like you need to say something. You, want to, you almost want to preach on it yourself uh, in, in the things that the Lord is bringing to your mind. And there's lots of times, I'll be sitting there lots of times listening to somebody preach, and I'll be going through my Bible because there's all kinds of things that the Lord's bringing to my mind that I'm thinking about. And those, that, that is a great thing. And that is why there's good time for fellowship afterwards. That's really why we should be fellowshipping after, our, uh, after hearing the word read and preached so that we can bring those things out. There's a whole lot I like to have said extra here today, but I would have been here for a lot longer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that's why we gather together as people so that those things can keep coming out. 
that God can continue to work in us with what he presents to us in his word for that day. Those who are called and ordained of Christ to preach the word have a duty to fulfill that high calling, and it should be a desire and a joy to them to want to do so. It really should be that way, not just for the pastor, but it should be that way for all of us. Uh, as a young Christian, I can remember learning things and just being excited about it. Like, wow, this is amazing. I, I didn't know this. I still get that way. I'll find things. I'm like, wow, I never saw that that way before. I, uh, you know, I, These things weren't put together in a certain way before. and uh, I'll get excited over some of that stuff. And uh, it, it, it's a wonderful thing that each believer gets to participate in. It's not something that's just reserved for the pastor. It's something that everybody as we read through the Word, as, as the Lord continues to work in us, building us up in Him, molding us in the image of Christ, that we can see these things and that we can discuss them, we can talk about them, we can learn from one another. Paul wrote to Timothy <clears throat> that no man that worth entangleth, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So the pastor especially and really this is kind of a, this is something for all of us. The pastor especially should have no entanglement with worldly or carnal affairs. Those things should be left behind. Their whole life should be dedicated and absorbed into the ministry. Lord willing. Sometimes it's not always possible. Especially with a small church, it becomes even more, more uh, difficult uh, to be able to put all of the time that we would like to put into it. Um, not all of us have uh, a congregation like the president of the SBC where they've got, you know, thousand plus people and uh, money coming in just flowing left and right and <laughs> uh, teams of people to help you out with everything. And that's uh, not even a biblical pattern. We don't even see that in Scripture. Uh, but we see, uh, we see the apostles, we see men working hard to make sure that they do what God has called them to do in preaching the Word of God and bringing it to God's people. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 2. As the New Testament church was being formed, Providence ordered that there should be offices within the local assemblies. And uh, I use that example of that one particular SBC church and pastoral teams and research teams and this, that, and other types of offices, and the, the number of pastors in some of these mega churches, and they all have titles executive pastor, teaching pastor, youth pastor, children's pastor, married couples pastor, collegiate pastor, worship pastor. I, I'm sure there's a whole lot more I don't even know of. Uh, but they, they come up with all these, and I ain't never once seen one of those in the Word of God. Never have I seen one of those pastors listed in the Word of God. We do see that churches have multiple elders, but they never, they're never divided up into who does what. They're just elders. They're just pastors of the church. So here God is ordering these offices. And in Acts chapter 6 here, the apostles established the role of the pastor and the office and the role of the deacons. Acts 6, 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word, the word of God and serve tables. So they're being tied up with all kinds of things going on, all kinds of physical things. And, and they're, they're, they're constantly being taken away from studying the word. 
And they know that the most important thing that they need to do is be in the Word of God. That is their most important thing for their life is to be in the Word of God and in prayer over these things. That's their two most important things that their whole life should be consumed with. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the business is of taking care of the physical needs of, of the church, of the people of God. There's a physical, there are physical things that need taken care of, whether it's helping widows or helping find homes for orphans or helping distribute food or collect money to help other people. Whatever the case might be, these physical things are things that the deacons are hereby uh, declared, this is your role, this is your job, to take care of these things. The role of the pastor is to take care of those spiritual needs. So there's a very big distinction here. We see it again in 1 Timothy. Verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Mm-hmm. So they needed somebody. There's a lot of things that happen in, 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 a, in a, a local body, in a congregation. There's a lot of things going on. Our, our whole lives are in, entangled with one another. Everything. And that's what was happening here. These people were joining themselves together to such a degree that everything in their life was spilling over into the church. That's a good thing here. The apostles aren't condemning that. They're saying, hey, this is a good thing, but we need to sort this out so that we can function in order, in an orderly manner. God is a God of order. We don't want things just to be haphazard. We don't want to not give to the Word and to prayer that which is due especially of the preachers of the Word, the teachers of the Word. They need to be focused upon these things. And so the deacons were to go out, and they were to take care of everything else that was happening in that church. They were to help keep that order there on those physical needs. It's an extremely important job. These are two offices of the church. that They're both critically important. There's a physical side and a spiritual side. Both are critically important because without the one, the other one doesn't function right. You have to have both. The pastor's time being absorbed in the study of the word and devoted to prayer is so that he may be presented, approved to God as a workman who accurately handles the word. The pastor has been commissioned to preach the word, be instant in season and out. He must know doctrine. He must know how to use it properly. The Lord instructed Peter in John 21 he's to, to feed and shepherd his sheep. This was a model for a pastor. Yeah, I had some sheep on, on my brain this week, but I just came to mind. It requires men of God to lead the sheep to the pasture, which is what? The pasture is the word of God for them to feast upon. The, the pastor is the under-shepherd of Christ. Christ is the good shepherd. We are his under-shepherds as pastors. And under-shepherds are to lead those sheep to be fed, to tend them, and to care for them. And a lot of times, sheep need a little direction. They need a little kick to get moving. They need that little hook and to, to get them moving in the right direction. That's what the Word of God does. I don't need to physically take a hook and start swatting people around. Brother Jimmy's got a good little tool there to hurt us around very well. <laughs> But he knows that that thing has no power, but this has power to move us in ways that we can never even imagine by the power of God's Spirit. It's an amazing thing what God can do to us. Here is shown the love of God towards his people. 
He wants them fed and taken care of by his, his under-shepherds, his ministers. The only way a pastor can accomplish the responsibilities of taking care of God's people is to be in the Word and prayer. God so loves His people that He brings them together in this assembly, and He wants a man to come forth out of that assembly to, what? Teach the Word of God. To be in Word and prayer so that He can accurately handle this Word so that everyone in the church might be edified. And through that edification, we are all molded and shaped into the image of Christ. And through that, God is glorified above all things. And the worship becomes even more deep, deeper, becomes more intense, becomes more genuine, becomes more glorifying and exalting unto God. A pastor should want every person whom the Lord has brought into his presence to be made perfect in Christ which can only be done by the working of of God's Holy Spirit, sanctifying the believer in the Word of God, with the Word of God. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I work for these things because he works in me, and I want to see all perfected. And even as, a, uh, as a, a, a believer who is not a pastor, don't we want to see that for our brethren as well? We want to see each and every one of them perfected in Christ. Because in that, we see God glorified. We see Christ magnified. We see that light of Christ shine brightly by us being molded and shaped into that image of Christ by the Holy Spirit working in us. The preacher must labor and strive to accomplish bringing the word of God accurately to God's people. There can be no carelessness or disregard for the holiness of the scriptures which have been breathed out by God himself. With the word of the Holy Spirit, there is power in God's word. Power to bring about a knowledge of salvation. Power to sanctify a believer. Power to, go- to reveal God himself. If the preacher is called to put this much time and effort and devotion into studying and preaching God's word, how much more should we as God's children put into listening and hearing God's word? When you look at through all the requirements and all the things that God does in, in addressing preachers and pastors, there is a lot there. It's a serious, serious matter. God does not take this lightly. And if God has this much concern and he puts this much effort into describing all of these things in his word for the, for the preacher of the word of God, what does he expect of the people that are hearing it? And again, as Brother Charles said in the Bible study, God doesn't just say things just to say them. He's not just throwing words out there. And if he calls his preachers to come and to, to, to teach the word of God, there's a purpose for it. There's something he wants his people to know, to hear to learn from, to understand, and to be molded by. We're changed by that word, by God's Spirit. It's an active working process here of God through all of these things. He doesn't want us just to throw this away, to treat it like it's nothing. And I know I'm not the greatest preacher in the world, nowhere near it. (laughs) But what we say of this word, and if we speak the truth of it, God can use it, and God is glorified in that. 
And the more time that the preacher be, is able to spend in the Word and to bring these things out, the greater the blessings will be not only in the message that's preached, but in the lives of those who hear it. And it not just affects us then here. When we move out of this room and we go into fellowship, it affects our fellowship. When we leave here and depart from one another, it affects every element of our life from there on out. We might not meet again next week. We, we don't know what, what the Lord may bring. But we know that what the Lord has taught us thus far in His Word, through preaching, through all of these years, that it is going to be used for some purpose and His glory. All through the Scriptures, we, we see reading and preaching. It has been part of corporate worship since Moses read God's Word to the people of Israel after the Exodus. Preaching goes back even further. When you look at Adam and Eve's response to their firstborn child, uh, the declaration that the Lord has, has given us a man, really that is a form of preaching. They knew that they needed a Savior. They anticipated a Savior for their sins. They thought that maybe that was going to be their Savior. They anticipated that. They declared it. It's even in God's Word that it's there, that they said it. And it's really the first form of preaching that we have by mankind. Nobody else was even there. They were preaching to each other. But glory be unto God. It was still exalting God. Enoch was a preacher. Uh, listed in Genesis 5, Jude verse 14 also describes him as a preacher. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. So we have preaching all throughout the word. And, of course, sadly, with Noah, even though he's a preacher of righteousness, God did not use it, did he? He preached the truth. And according to Peter, I would say in 2 Peter 2.5 that what Moses was doing was done in the Holy Spirit. But the, the, the reaction by the people clearly was not something that they were being moved by God in. So even, even when the message is preached without the Holy Spirit moving, without God calling a person or actively working in them, the message is just falling on deaf ears. The reading and preaching of God's Word is how God wants to communicate with His people. It's how He wants to build them up in Himself, to draw us near to Him so that we can know Him better, that we may have a closer relationship, a closer walk with Him. The Word of God is sacred and must be treated as such. The primitive church, as we saw in Acts, heard the preaching of God's Word. They received it with joy. They desired it. They clung to it. They wanted more of it. I think about the Corinthians getting that first letter from Paul that we have here. They, they were corrected and rebuked in that letter. The Word of God was used for that purpose. I don't know how much more they wanted to hear from Paul after that first letter. <laughs> clearly they got a second letter. But clearly that first letter had a major effect, didn't it? Because that second letter was, uh, was very different. He addressed them differently. God used that first letter. He used that word. And what did they do with that? What happened when these letters went to a church? The pastor of that church took that word and he read it. Did he expound upon it? I would imagine so. But he certainly read it among that church. And what happened when that first letter was written? There was change. God changed them dramatically, really. They still had some, some rough edges that that second letter helped to clean up a little bit. But God did a major work there within them. As we approach the reading and preaching of God's Word, we must go forward first in prayer. Here's important. The preacher 
The pastor is to be in the Word and in prayer by the Apostle's example. But we all should be in prayer over the Word even before the message is preached. We pray, that the Holy, we pray for the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a willful desire to learn, and the mind of Christ to understand. We should pray that the Lord will mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, that he would use that word to transform us when we hear it, and that we would be edified and instructed properly in righteousness. Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We want that righteousness. We want to be filled with all of these glorious things of God. We want to know him better. Prayer should be given that the Lord would work in us to do good works from what we have learned from his word. And James said, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. So it's easy to come here and sit and listen and then just take off. But it's a whole other thing to take that word and apply it to our lives and to do it when we go out and to let it repeat again and again in our lives those great works of righteousness that we learn through the word. And I said last week, I, I, I repented last week of my uh, not giving the time uh, and the, uh, the heart into uh, making an effort to being in this room on time to sing. And this morning, I was here early. I've been some of y'all this morning. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, last week, I, I was preaching to myself, and this week, I'm preaching to myself, too. And so, uh, you know, we take these things and we learn what God has given us. And we want to be able to take these things and, and put them into our lives. Why? Because this is a book of righteous instruction. God is holy and righteous. God sanctifies us through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. And in doing so, what do we do? We reflect the light of Christ. And what, what greater thing could we possibly attain to in this life than to reflect our Savior? that the world would see the light of the world in us. What a, what a humbling thing to consider, because I don't deserve that. I don't deserve uh, anything of Christ, but yet God calls us to reflect Christ in our lives. He calls us to preach that light in this dark world, and that's a difficult thing to do. But once we have each other and we can learn from each other, edify one each other, uh, admonish one another, those things become a little bit easier as we all grow in the Lord together. We should pray for the preacher and teachers that they would receive an unction, a, a, a great blessing, a great movement, great power from the Holy Spirit to proclaim truth, and that their words would be, Thus saith the Lord. That's one of the things I pray for. Don't let it be my words, Lord. Let it be your words. If anything that I get caught up in where it's me, I hope it just gets washed away. Hold my tongue. Because I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about God. I don't want to have errors. I don't want to do anything wrong or say anything wrong or misspeak. Because I want God to be above all else and for Him to be revealed in His will. He is perfect, I am not. But I want, to, I want everybody to see. I want to see the perfection of God uh, preached in His Word. So there must be much prayer both for the hearer and the preacher both. Because there's a lot involved in, in, in that in both things. And I know I pray for all of you all of you when when the Lord gives me opportunity to preach or teach, 
that you would hear truth. And if I speak an error, I pray you don't even hear it. <laughs> and I pray for God's forgiveness uh, because it is a sacred thing. This is, is a holy thing to be able to come forth and to speak these words before God's people. It's an intimidating thing. I don't. I, I, I hardly sleep at all on Saturday night. I really don't. Um, it's it's uh, it's a weighty, heavy thing to consider the Word of God and then to bring it before His people. And um, and I covered prayers for for uh, for that for the work of God in me when when uh, He gives me opportunity to, to <laughs> preach or teach, and uh, I take joy in it. Sometimes in the build up to it, the lack of sleep and the, the labor over it is, is sometimes tough. <laughs> uh, but then I join it afterwards. So usually after I'm done, I take a sigh of relief and, and I, I, I take joy in it. I don't know if anybody ever learns from it, but I know I learn a lot <laughs> from the Lord. You have a good meal afterwards. I have. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was, I was trying to, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm already blanking on what I did this morning. I think I said to Kara, you probably know the quote better. That which we need to learn most is what we preach the greatest. I know I'm not saying that right. But that what we need to learn the most is what we should be preaching the greatest. I can't remember the exact words, so forget what I said. <laughs> but uh, I'll close with this. God said in Isaiah 55:11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Amen. And so one thing's for sure that I can take glory in is that no matter what I say, as long as I read this, it will not come back to God void.